All the way back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, Jesus instructed his servant, the Apostle John, to, quote, write the things which you have seen, past tense. This would be the glorified Christ presented to John in chapter 1. Then Jesus says, write the things which are, which as we articulated and explained would include the the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the church presented for us in chapters 2 and 3, this second section. But lastly, Jesus instructs John, write the things which you have seen, present, past tense, the things which are presently, but also write the things which will take place after this. Now with regards to those things which occur after the completion of the church age, Revelation chapter 4 through chapter 19, verse 10, document a seven-year period of history, future history, we call the Great Tribulation. The last ten verses, then, of Revelation 19 record the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth in the Battle of Armageddon. Chapter 20 then presents for us the millennial reign of Christ, again on the earth, which culminates in a final rebellion and the great white throne judgment, those things we looked at last Sunday. Transitioning now from the 20th to 21st chapter of the book, we enter really what is the last section of this grand revelation, the things which will take place after this. Let's dive right into our text, Revelation 21, verse 1. John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Now beyond the tribulational period, the thousand year reign of Christ, this last great white throne judgment, John transitions to a description of an entirely new reality for the believer in Christ. This new reality John depicts in the idea here of the first heaven and earth giving way to a new heaven and a new earth. It's worth taking a second and clarifying That when John references the first heaven, as well as this new heaven, the word heaven here that John is using, it describes the expanse of the sky, including outer space. It's not heaven in the traditional context of like where God dwells. It's not heaven in that sense. It's not the word that's being used. Following either death or the rapture, we will live in heaven the place where God dwells. But after the second coming, as we've looked at, our lives will play out on this earth. It'll be different, but it'll be this earth restored. So we'll spend some time in heaven, then we spend time in this earth ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. But then, according to John, after this great white throne judgment and the final rebellion of man is put down, John witnesses here an entirely new reality ushered in a new heaven, a new earth, a new sky, a new expanse. Now understand that in the original, there were no chapter and verse breaks, the original text. So it's not an accident, really, that John presents our new reality in direct contrast to the final few verses of the previous chapter. Moving from this daunting concept of hell a place of eternal torment and judgment, John immediately shifts to this presentation of what our eternal lives 
will look like on a new earth. Now right from the jump, I need to point out how incredibly detailed and specific this chapter happens to be. It's, it's amazing, really. In this revelation given to John, it will become evident, and don't miss this, that God did not want to leave the future eternity of the believer a mystery. He didn't want it to be a mystery. You know, there's this grand question, what will heaven be like? God doesn't want you to speculate. He doesn't want you to theorize. He wants you to know, and he provides an incredible amount of detail so that there are no questions. God wants you to know what your everlasting life for eternity will look like. And why is that? It's been said correctly that the glory of heaven should outshine all that might tempt us on this earth. This context of eternity, this picture of eternity, this reality of eternity should place our moment in context. It should provide us clarity. Our eternity should place today in an important reality. Now regarding this new heaven and earth, where you and I will live out our eternity, you should keep in mind that God does not remodel or renovate this current heaven and earth, as he did following the tribulational period. This is not a fixer-upper. It's not one of those remodeling shows. He doesn't take some of the pieces and, and reworks it and puts it together. He's not remodeling the farmhouse. Instead, really according to a parallel passage presented for us in Isaiah 65, God does something different, something he hasn't done since the beginning. God places uh, replaces this reality with something else entirely. Let me read you the passage I, I referred to in Isaiah 65 or 17. This is what the Lord says. He declares, For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former shall, be remem shall not be remembered or come to mind. And, and in the Hebrew, the word that's being used here for create, I create a new heavens and a new earth. Create. It's the word bara in the Hebrew. And it's the same word, the identical word, you'll find in Genesis 1.1, where we're told in the beginning God created bara, the heavens and the earth. The word means to create all things out of nothing. So again, what we're being uh, articulated here is that God doesn't take this earth and remodels it. Heaven and earth pass away. God built, brings in something brand new out of nothing. No remnants of the previous. This new earth, John sees, will be this fresh creation emanating from the imagination of God himself. John also notes in the first verse how this new earth no longer had a sea. Now, while you could read this <clears throat> literally as there being no beachfront property on the new earth, which I would personally find to be very disappointing, I like the beach. I like putting my toes in the sand. I've imagined eternity with a beach. I might even learn how to surf. Well, it's true this could be literal. There, there's also another way that you could read this. It, it, literal might not be the case. Like in the Jewish mind, the sea 
it was, it was seen figuratively as being a place that represented evil or uncertainty, chaos. Like the Hebrew people were not nautical. They weren't seafaring. They didn't like the ocean. I mean, again, when you have stories of Jonah, you can understand why. You know, you go out on a boat, you're going to get eaten by a fish. It may be that this new earth doesn't have a sea at all. Or it could be that John is, is, is referencing here something that the, the Hebrew mind would understand, that this new earth would be a place of, of, of trans, tranquility, of order, of assuredness. Now, as we unpack John's description of this earth, it's again worth acknowledging the fact that here we have a first century Hebrew apostle looking many millennia into the future, looking at a world that's in a new reality, tasked with the job of putting to parchment what he's seeing. Like, there's no question that John is going to face some obvious linguistic limitations. <laughs> John's about to detail something incredible, but something he will struggle to put into words. And, and we can give him a pass for that. Verse 2. <clears throat> then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So this literal city is descending through the heavens. John says the city was prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. <laughs> How great is that? nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. In these verses, John presents for us three central characteristics of this new earth, this new reality, where we'll live out our eternal lives. First, John, if you look back, he records how the tabernacle of God will dwell with men. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle of God referred to a portable tent where the presence, the Shekinah glory of God would come and dwell on the earth. The tabernacle was a physical dwelling, but it was a tent. Building off that imagery, in John 1 verse 14, Jesus is first introduced to us as being the word that what became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt literally means he tabernacled among us. So the presence of God dwelt in a tent in the Old Testament, and then the presence of God dwelt in the person of Jesus. When John says to us that in this future eternal reality, the tabernacle of God will dwell with men, what is he referring to? A tent? No. The tabernacle of God means that we will live in this eternity in perfect community with Jesus Christ himself. Jesus will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. That word with is used quite a bit. Secondly, John also tells us that this eternal reality will be very different from our present one. Why? 
But we're told, for the former things have passed away. Now in this phrase, the former things have passed away, John is revealing his struggle to put into words what he's witnessing. Like instead of describing what this reality will be like, he distinguishes it by listing some of the things this future reality would not include. Things like tears and death and sorrow and crying and pain, central to this life, will have no place in our future. You're born into this world You get popped, and then you cry. You experience pain, and then you cry. And then guess what? The rest of that experience, the rest of life, kind of follows suit. You keep getting smacked, experiencing pain and sorrow and crying, and ultimately you die. You're put out of your misery. I mean, that's central to this life. And yet, this eternity, those things have passed away. Now, when John says that that they've passed away or departed, He doesn't mean that our former earthly experiences, that the memories we're making now are somehow like Men in Black. Now, now if you've ever seen the movie Men in Black, you know, like there's aliens running around the world, but if Will Smith comes to you and says, hey, look into this light, and boom, like it erases all of your memory of, of everything that's just happened. That's not what's being described here. It's not as though all of our memories and all of our experiences at this point, are erased, like there's a hard reset, we forget everything. No, 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 no. That's not what the word means. Rather, what John is saying is that these former things that cause this pain and cause this sorrow, they will no longer have the same type of impact as they once did. Why? For God will wipe away every tear. You see, all the things that have caused this pain and suffering, we'll remember them, but they'll no longer have the same effect. Why? Because they've been resolved by God. There's been a resolution. We see them in the context of eternity. We know why. Lastly, John says that central to this new earth will be the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's interesting that while the Bible began with man living in a garden created by God for his his enjoyment, it ends with mankind now dwelling in a city, a holy city, that John describes as being like a bride adorned for her husband. This city here, it's unique, it's holy, holy special. Now broadly speaking, in addition to dwelling with God, with Jesus, Our eternal reality will also include, and this might bum some of you out, but it will also include dwelling with others. We will be with God, we will be with Jesus, but we will also be with each other. You see, eternity will not be a place of isolation, but one of community. Like the new Jerusalem, no doubt patterned in some way after the original city of peace will be filled with people, you and I. It will be a city, vibrantly full of activity and life. You know, it's interesting that mankind has never once experienced perfect community. Now, you might say, well, what about Adam and Eve in the garden? No, they didn't. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, they understood what it was like to be one flesh, this marital relationship. But I mean, sin ruined things 
before they could bring any other people into the world to have community with. Like there was no community in the garden, just a marriage. No other people. In fact, because of the fallen nature of man and knowing the power of synergy, God doesn't seem throughout Scripture to be very keen on large congregations of sinners getting together and hanging out. The case in point, the very first city referenced in the Scriptures was Babel, a city founded by an Antichrist named Nimrod in direct rebellion against God's command to spread out and fill the earth. You know, today, today the church, it's the church that has been called by Jesus to emulate the community we'll one day have in the New Jerusalem. It's the church that the world is supposed to look like and see the community that we'll have in heaven. And with that in mind, there are several things that we learn about heaven. Like we know by looking at the church that the heavenly community will be racially segregated. You'll have white sections and black sections and Latino sections and Asian sections. You know that because you drive down the street and you see all those churches, right? We also know the worship of God will probably be divided in the New Jerusalem into age-specific services. Like there will be an early service in heaven for the old people who prefer hymns. I imagine John Wesley will lead that service. But then after that, there'll be another service for the more youthful residents of heaven who prefer a more contemporary expression to their worship. Aside from this, we know that there'll probably be different boroughs in the New Jerusalem. On one side of town, there will be a borough for those who prefer to read their Bible in the old King James Version. The rebels on the other side of the tracks, well, they prefer their Bible with the new King James Version. Where the Starbucks and the coffee shop, the trendy side of town, where the hipsters live in heaven, they only read out of the ESV. In fact, you might not know this about heaven, but for all of eternity, we're going to spend our time arguing as to whether or not we chose to be there or God determined it. How awesome is that? Now, obviously, I kid. The truth is that the church while mandated to reflect the community we'll find in heaven, falls very short in that mandate, doesn't doesn't she? We're called to an ideal, but the church has and will fall short, which is why, interestingly, we're constantly, the church, exhorted in Scripture to what? If I got any exhortation to the church, Paul would say, well, at bet, bear with one another. Don't enjoy one another. Like, let's just get to the bait. Like, bear with one another. Tolerate each other, please. In fact, the love that you're supposed to have, let's just say it should be long-suffering. Like, let's concede it's going to be some suffering, but let's just make it long-suffering. Like, even even, even the Holy Spirit acknowledges this, this obvious struggle that we would have as the church to get along. The truth is that heavenly community, yes, it should be something that we work towards. It should be something we desire, as long as we know that heavenly community will be impossible to achieve apart from, well, heaven. How refreshing that the new Jerusalem will include this social framework that's totally alien, foreign 
to this earth. For the first time in this holy city, for eternity, humanity will live with God and in complete harmony with one another. The cultural vibe of this city will be incredible. Verse 5, Then he who sat on the throne, and this would be Jesus, said, Behold, I make all things new. We find here a, a, an authoritative statement. It's in the present tense. It's basically Jesus declaring that God's plan at this point is done. It's complete. At last, a new day has dawned. Behold, I, I make all things new. And then Jesus said to me, John says, right. For these words are true or they're totally genuine and faithful or dependable. And I love this, right? John here is apparently so overwhelmed. He's so in awe by what he's seeing concerning this future, about this heavenly reality he's witnessing, that Jesus has to kind of pause in the action and say, John, John, get back to writing. <laughs> you're, supposed to, you're supposed to be writing this down. He's, his, his jaw's down. He stopped. He's looking. And Jesus is like, you got, you got to write, son. You got to write. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Now this, this phrase, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely. You know, <clears throat> I, could, I could do a whole Bible study on just this sentence. I won't. But the flyby is that we have here presented man's need, don't we? Fundamentally, what is man's need? A thirst. A thirst that we, we try to quench in this world through pleasure, through fame, through notoriety, through all kinds of things, stuff. We thirst, and we so deeply want that thirst to be quenched. But everything the world offers just deepens the thirst and the quest for more. But God offers something that the world doesn't. He says that he offers the fountain of the water of life. And how do we get to this fountain? Well, we're told that God will give freely. I love this word freely. In the original language, it would be better trans translated as that, that God would give it undeservingly. It's not something you deserve. It's not something you earn. God gives what we don't deserve but he gives it freely. And all you have to do is come and drink. Verse seven. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. You know, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter one, the third verse, where Paul says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there's a truth that I have a lot of these things, <laughs> But I don't have all of them yet, do I? And, and yet now, at this point in our eternity, we have the fulfillment of this. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. There's nothing left to receive by this point. Jesus says, I will be his God, and he shall be my son. I would imagine that if you're a female, daughter would also apply. You're a family member. But the cowardly, Really, better translated, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, 
those who are just foul. Murderers, sexually immoral. That word sexually immoral is one word, it's pornos or fornicator. The sorcerers, pharmacitas, where we get the word pharmacy. Idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Again, another warning referring back to the previous chapter, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me. And he talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The invitation here by this familiar angel to show John the bride, the lamb's wife, which is then introduced as being that great city, the holy Jerusalem, is admittedly confusing, (laughs) kind of confounding. While there are some who see this new Jerusalem as being purely kind of a figurative depiction of the church, which we know to be the bride of Christ. A depiction of of us in heaven. The details, though, that follow don't really support anything other than this place being a a literal city. Because in verse 2, John told us that the city, as he saw it, was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's likely, and I gravitate to the position, that the New Jerusalem here is called the bride simply because it's, it's, it's the gift of the groom to the wife. David Guzik, who's one of my favorite Bible commentators, he wrote of this verse. He says, it's the bride, the city, because it's where God's people are gathered. Like with this in mind, we should read the description as being a description of a literal city and not figuratively of the church. And yet the imagery here of the city being prepared as a bride, it's supposed to elicit from the reader a measure of awe, the beauty. It's special. Again, it's unique. Now, the first thing that John describes is being carried away in the Spirit. He says, to a great and high mountain. Uh, No doubt, this great and high mountain, John is taken to because it would give him an appropriate vantage point in order to see this awesome city descending out of heaven and coming to rest on the new earth. Now, one of the things that we should keep in mind as we study the city, the new Jerusalem, And this is really trippy, but it's that there is an entire world, an earth, that exists outside of her four walls. It's true that we're told very little of what this earth looks like, other than the fact that there's no sea and at least one high mountain. Now, pertaining to the city itself, the first thing that John is initially taken back as he sees the city come from heaven coming down to the earth. He's taken back by, he just calls it her light. Like there's the general aura, the countenance of the city was incredibly bright. John says it was so bright, it was like like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now when we think of a jasper stone, we think of a stone with a, a reddish hue to it. 
in the Greek, it's not a jasper stone as we would think of it. And again, when we look at a bunch of these different stones, it's hard to, to provide a, a very particular equivalency. Some of them might be exactly as we would, we would, we would understand them to be. I'm not going to get into the nuances because you just can't say for sure. But here, this word jasper stone would probably be better translated as a precious gem. Like John, like we're attempting to conceptualize what he's seeing. You should probably see that he's like this city, her light, her brilliance, her aura was like a brilliant diamond. So that's in your mind how you should kind of conceptualize it. Now John continues, he's going to give us now the structure of the city. And, and note, I mean, again, the details are amazing here. Verse 12, also she, again the city, had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And again, gates exist for what purpose? To enter and to exit by. So again, there's this whole world, and we're looking at a city. You can enter and exit. John says that there were 12 angels at the gates. Now, we don't know if there were one angel at each of the 12 gates or 12 angels at each gate. Don't know. We're told that names were written on them. And the way the Greek construct is, is that there were names on the gates, not the angels. The names, John says, are the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. As to the location of these 12 gates, John says there were three gates on the east, <coughs> three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city, and so we know that there's now four sides to the city, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now there is no question that the structure of the city, it's really straightforward, again awesomely detailed. John tells us that the city had a great and high wall with 12 gates. These gates are guarded by angels. And on each of the gates, there were the twelve. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel were, were written on them. The gates, again, allowing passage into and out of the city, did so from, again, and we have basic geography, north, south, east, and west. So very similar to the way that we would view things. This geographic reference implies that John is seeing here four sides to the wall giving the city, a, again, a very defined parameter. So this is our future. This is a city we will dwell in. The walls, John notes that they are supported by 12 foundations. So again, this new earth probably has some similar understanding of gravity. You need foundation. On these foundations are the names of the 12 apostles. Now, who are the 12 apostles? I don't know. You can read. Is it Matthias or is it the Apostle Paul? I don't know. We'll know then. We'll figure it out. Now to the dimensions. So we have the structure. Now the dimensions of the city. Verse 15. And he who talked with me. So this angel. Had a gold reed to measure the city. Measure its gates and its wall. The city, John says, is laid out as a square. So there are four equal sides. Its length as great as its breadth. And he, again, the angel, this would be a task John couldn't have done. 
The angel measured the city with the reed. 12,000 furloins. So, that's 1,500 miles. 1,500 miles. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So again, the city seems to be a cube. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Then he, again, the angel, measured its wall. 144 cubits. And then John says, according to the measure of a man, but then he's like, well, of an angel, because it's the angel doing the measuring, but we've seen that the measurement of an angel and the man are the same. The measurement of this wall, being 144 cubits, means that the wall itself is 216 feet thick. So if you're trying to imagine this, take a 20-story building, lay it on its side, and it's, and it's like brilliant like a diamond. Imagine walking through it. This is heaven, so we don't have to worry about kids and fingerprints. You know, you'd need a lot of Windex to clean this baby. Now, I know I just kind of read through some things here. It's hard to picture this, right? It's hard to conceptualize it. Let me, let me, let me try to help you grasp s- the size of such a place. Imagine a city sitting on a, a stretch of real estate that spanned from Maine all the way to Florida. And then from New York all the way to Denver. Then make that a cube. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Like, think about that. 1,500 miles equals 7.92 million feet, which would be a 731,519-story cube-shaped building. So you got it? Which would be a little under 63 trillion square feet which ends up resulting in about, you can check my calculations later, 1.44 billion square acres. This is quite a place. Like for a mental picture, the radius of the moon is only 1,080 miles. This is 1,500 miles. So in the end, what John is seeing coming from heaven is a city that's about 30% larger than the moon coming to settle itself on a new earth, which gives us a little insight into how massive the new earth has to be to take such a city and have it not throw itself off its axis. Like in many ways, and, and I think it's safe to say, that the new Jerusalem is just kind of too big for the human imagination to grasp. If you're like, man, there are so many Christians that are going to be living here. You say we're going to be in community with one another. That kind of bums me out because I kind of prefer to be on a farm away from people. Well, if you run the numbers and there's like 100 million, let's, 100 billion, Let's go with that. 100 billion Christians, you know, populate this city. If you run the math, like, it gets down to, like, everyone gets about half, like, 
about, about 50 acres a person. So we are in a city, but we're in a city with acreage. Love it. Now, the beauty of the city, the beauty. Again, the structure, the dimensions, the beauty. Verse 18. John says, the construction of its wall was of jasper. Again, a diamond. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. Now, to try to picture this, and you can Google and see a lot of like, you know, people trying to imagine what this looks like. Again, it's a cube. You have four sides. Uh, you have 12 gates, meaning you have three gates on each of the four sides. Um, you have a foundation, you know, 12 foundations. In my mind, you have 1,500 miles on each side, right? And you have three gates, and you have three foundations. My guess is that each of the foundations we're going to look at are probably about 500 miles long. And, and in the middle of that 500 miles, you would have a gate. So you have a 1,500-mile side divided into three sections, three foundations with a gate in the middle. So if you're trying to picture it out, this is what, this is what we're getting to. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, and the third chalcedony. So that makes up one side. The fourth emerald, the fifth sarnix, the sixth sardis. So that's the second side. The seventh crystallite. So if you don't, if you don't need, if you, if you don't want sugar in your soda, you can go and chip off some of this. The, the eighth barrel, the ninth topaz, so that's the third side. The tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, so that's the final side. So you've got these, these four sides. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Has to be a big clam. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and, and we don't know how tall the gates were. So we don't know if the gates are, are 1,500 miles high. We don't know how wide they are. The street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. Again, it should be reiterated. The Apostle John is attempting to describe a city that's literally out of this world. And he's trying to do so using very limited human language. Blows our imagination. The big takeaway that you should, uh, from the description of the New Jerusalem, is that in the city, pure gold was functionally used as asphalt. <laughs> Gives you an idea. Now that John, again seeing the streets, so he's entered the city, gates, interior streets, he continues, verse 22, but I saw... Again, inside, no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. So what is the, the, the illumination? We're told the Lamb is its light. In the Old Testament, the temple was a physical place on the earth whereby man came to encounter God. And while in the context, the New Testament context, Christians, you and I, are now the temple of the living God sent out into the world, and the millennial kingdom, the temple will revert back to its original function. It will be the place that Jesus physically dwells on, on, on a throne on the earth. 
What's fascinating is that in this new Jerusalem, John does not see a temple at all. In fact, he just adds that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Like, not only does this mean that there are also no longer priests, or procedures, or ceremonies, or veils, and curtains, or rites, or rituals, or sacrifices, it appears in eternity, in this city, Jesus is everywhere. And this idea, it's, it's something that John further illustrates with the detail that there's no need of a sun or a moon. Jesus illuminates the city, just his presence. Finishing out the chapter, John adds, verse 24, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter, enter it anything that defiles, or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is one of the most difficult passages, I think, in the entire Bible. Other than the fact that only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are allowed entry into the holy city, when John mentions here the nations and the kings of the earth bringing glory and honor into the city, again, there being a much larger expanse outside this new earth, I have no idea what John is referencing. And if you run across anyone that does, they're lying to you. No idea. Like, we do know, and we can say for certain, that this will not include, like, the wicked or people that are in hell. No, all of those, there's been a finality to that. They've been cast in the lake of fire. They're in hell. That's already happened. Could it be, though, that we all have a home in the New Jerusalem? You know, kind of a condo in the city. But we also have lives somewhere else? Like, on this new earth? Maybe. Who knows? Again, we have a great description of heaven, of eternity, but we don't have all of the details. Now, continuing his description of just the important things inside of the city, John writes, Revelation 22, verse 1, and he showed me a pure river of, of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So John sees the throne of God, in the city, and from the throne, he notes that, that coming from it is this river of water. Again, there's no sea, but there's a river of water. In the middle of its street, so in the middle of the river, and on either side of the river, so the two banks, was the tree of life. So this is singular, which bore 12 fruits. <laughs> We're in a whole new world, right? Because we have one tree bearing 12 different fruits. Not something you typically find. It's rare. Each tree, which now we get into this plural, yielding its fruit every month, which again is weird because there's no, there's no sun, but we have one tree, the tree of life, with what seems to be numerous spru sprouts coming up. So it's, it looks like it's a bunch of trees, but it's all one tree. It's the tree of life in the middle of the river on each bank, having the shoots, bearing 12 different fruits, there being some cyclical or season to it, though there's no sun. So there's a measurement of time in eternity because it's, it's by month. Again, kind of an interesting insight into what eternity will be. John says the leaves of this tree were for the healing of the nations. You know, originally found in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life. It now reappears at the end of the book. So something we have at the beginning of the book now comes back at the end. 
on the banks and in the midst of the river of living water that proceeds from the throne of God, John is describing for us a very real tree that bears 12 different kinds of very real fruit we get to eat and enjoy. And aside from the fruit, John says that the leaves were medicinal. They were for the healing of the nations. This word healing, it's therapia, the therapy. It's a service to the nations. Verse 3, and there shall be no more curse. So sin, sin's effects on God's creation, on man, are totally gone. But the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. Which means we'll have jobs and roles. We'll have a service, work in eternity. They shall see his face. The face of God. How cool. And his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. This verse, Revelation 22 verse 5. It's an important verse. Not only does the verse mark the end of really the narrative of the book of Revelation, but but it ends the story arc of the entire Bible. As we're going to see next Sunday, beginning with verse 6, continuing to the end of the chapter, John will be given and then relay to us some final exhortations that have nothing to do with the overarching story. Verse 5 is the end of what began in Genesis. Aside from our eternal reality, centering on Jesus, dwelling with us, the former things passing away, perfect community being experienced with one another, and an incredible city to enjoy with a river of living water and the tree of life, the big takeaway is that in the new earth there shall be no more curse, and we shall see His face. It's not an accident that the Bible begins and ends in much the same place. Man re- enjoying an unrestricted relationship with God. We shall see his face with unfettered access to the tree of life. So we shall live forever. In Genesis, as a consequence of, of eating the forbidden fruit, both of those two experiences were restricted, weren't they? Man's access to the tree of life was eliminated. It ushered in, as a a result, death to the human experience. And his sin, a veil, limited man's interactions with the holy and righteous God. It's interesting. There are a ton of similarities between the New Jerusalem and the Garden of Eden. Again, where the Bible begins and where it ends, there are a lot of similarities. Like both of the two places were created. For what? For man's enjoyment. And both, man could eat from the tree of life and live forever. And both, God dwelt with man. And there was no restriction to that relationship. In the New Jerusalem, we will see God face to face. And in, in the garden, God would come and walk in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. While in Eden, man was given a job, right? To tend to the garden. In the New Jerusalem, the saints, we will serve the king in the city. And yet, while there are a lot of similarities, there is, and we're going to close with this thought, we're going to unpack it, there is one huge difference 
between the two. In Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, this is what we read. We read that the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the one significant difference between the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem. For in the New Jerusalem, no tree exists, nor do we have any need of one. Again, I want to close our time together, but I want to do so by presenting a question. A question that I hope to use to make a a larger point about the passage. So here's the question. I I want you to chew on this. Will Adam and Eve... Enjoy the new Jerusalem more than they did the Garden of Eden because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, you might say, well, Zach, this is just one of those theoretical academic questions. Well, no, it's not. Because Adam and Eve were in the garden and then they'll be here. Now, now, now the short end of the answer, will Adam and Eve enjoy the new Jerusalem more than the Garden of Eden because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The short end of the answer is no. No. Like sin never enhances. Never enhances. Sin always destroys. It always does. It's what it, it's what it does. It destroys. It robs. It steals. Like Adam and Eve were not lacking in the garden. And they didn't benefit in any way from sinning. Let me give you an example. Like I don't need to become a heroin addict and in order to know that being sober is always a better experience than becoming sober. Like, I don't need to shoot up heroin to know that. Like, the life that Adam and Eve had in Eden before sin, it lacks any equivalency. So the short end of the answer is no. But the answer is also Yes. Like, like, for example, while being sober is always a better path than the need to become sober, it's also true that a recovering addict ends up having a much deeper appreciation for sobriety than the teetotaler. Like in Eden, Adam and Eve were ignorant of how well they had it, for they knew nothing else. But in the New Jerusalem, Their ignorance is gone because many, many years before they made a decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see how complex the question is, isn't it? Now, for you and me, the conversation is largely academic. Because unlike Adam and Eve, we never experienced the Garden of Eden. We were born from day one into sin. Humanity's original ignorance was supplanted and passed down from generation, we all have the knowledge of good and evil. And yet, my point is that the case can be made, the new Jerusalem will be a much deeper experience for humanity than Eden could have ever been for one simple reason. Sin. It's why such a tree is no longer needed 
and the New Jerusalem. Like to me, it's, it's, it's amazing that when man ruined his initial eternal experience in the Garden of Eden, what God had created for him, God's plan moving forward wasn't to make a way for man to return back to the garden. That wasn't God's plan. In fact, the gospel isn't God's plan of restoring things back to the way that they were. Why? For the knowledge of good and evil can never be undone. It can never go back into the tube. Like man can never return to a state of ignorance. Like this is why. Instead of a garden, God finished the story with a city. Like following man's rebellion, God launched a plan that included, and this blows my mind, but it included using sin, the very thing meant for our destruction, to create for us a new eternal experience that would be better than the first. It's a fascinating idea. But while the Bible says that sin unleashes havoc in a person's life, it also tells us that sin creates a much deeper capacity within the person to experience redemption, to be redeemed. In Romans 5 verse 20, Paul he says concerning this idea, he says that where sin abounds, what? God is done with you? He cuts you off? Oh, no, 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 no. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. The New Jerusalem will be a much greater place than Eden. Why? For it will be occupied by men and women who have been redeemed from sin and not those ignorant of such things. Like how awesome it is to consider the new Jerusalem will be the first and only place where the tree of life can be freely eaten by those who come to her with the knowledge of good and evil. So, Father, Lord, we just let that settle into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.